It's Friday, January the 28th. This is the Andrew Pierce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. If you're getting back used to commuting, are you ready for conscious commuting? We'll be getting the latest from the world of sport. New figures from NHS England which show hospital inpatients with COVID are falling very, very fast. Is the pandemic finally coming to an end? Chaos with the Sue Gray report. Is it delayed? Is it all been disrupted because of the Metropolitan Police investigation? We'll be finding out the latest. But first, Prince Andrew's lawyers asking for a trial by jury to deal with those accusations of sexual assault. Prince Andrew's lawyers have asked for trial by jury to deal with those accusations of sexual assault by Virginia Dufresne. Prince Andrew is also denied being a close friend of the convicted sex trafficker, Ghislaine Maxwell. His legal team has listed a number of reasons they believe, why they believe the civil lawsuit should be dismissed against him. On the line now is Eva Wallace, a reputation and privacy solicitor at the law firm Vardags. Eva, um, extraordinary development in this extraordinary ongoing drama. Are we really, really going to see the Queen's second son uh, appearing in court in front of a jury? Well, I mean, obviously, I'm just as surprised as everybody else. It's it's difficult to be 100% sure. It may well be that his most recent move is a way to sort of buy time to potentially craft a, you know, good settlement offer. But, you know, settlement for him is really the best, worst option for him at this moment, because going in front of a jury it will mean that he's going to face the humiliation of having to publicly testify against allegations of rape and sexual assault. And, you know, he'll be put through really, really uncomfortable questioning, which will reveal intimate details of his private life, sexual history, which is just bad news for him and the royal family as a whole. So ultimately, it it will be surprising if this goes all the way to trial and there is no attempt to to settle the case. But I mean, it's, going to be an interesting one to see. He was appalling in the Newsnight interview 18 months, two years ago, which almost triggered these events we've now got. Um, He was just, he was high-handed, arrogant, pompous, unapologetic, and in in the end had to put a statement out um, expressing his regret for the undoubted victims of his friend, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that was an interview, a Newsnight interview, and if that's how he performed there how is he going to perform under hours of questioning in court it's very very unlikely that it will create a good outcome for him emily makeless was well prepared but he would be facing uh, on newsnight but he would be facing a team of lawyers isn't the case really here if it is it just part of the pr battle between prince andrew and Virginia Dufresne, he appears to want to be able to go into court to clear his name because if he does settle, he'll never get the chance to clear his name. Uh, uh, so is this just part of that, um, uh, the, the war of words almost between the two of them? It's difficult to say. It could be, although it's just very, very difficult to see how he would think that's going to be a way to fully clear his name. I mean, in any event, like I said, the information that's going to come out if this goes to full trial is you know whatever the outcome going to be incredibly damaging to him and of course his royal his family you know really really sort of 
intimate details about his private life, sexual history, all of these things. It's just ultimately, no matter the outcome, this the memory of this is going to be out there for a very long time. So really, clearing his name completely is something which I can't see, which is why settling is maybe just the best way for him to sort of put this to bed. Because beyond, let's be honest, it would be probably, we often use this cliche in the media, don't we? The trial of the decade, the trial of the year, the trial of the century. It would certainly be the trial of the decade, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And the timing is just unfortunate as well, because it would just completely overshadow the Queen's Jubilee. If you were a betting person, Eva, would you be betting this will be settled? I've actually been thinking quite a lot about this, and I would bet that he would settle. I think I would be very surprised to see him go all the way to trial. Is that what his lawyers would be advising him to do realistically? And, you know, the majority of cases just in general do settle before going all the way to trial. I mean, it costs a lot of money uh, to go all that way. Um, But ultimately, again, um, on the flip side of things, even if he makes an offer to settle, a very, very generous one, she may not accept it. She may, and she's said before, she may want her day in court because she wants vindication for herself and, and also the many other victims. Any offer to settle is still going to probably involve some kind of admission of guilt, apology. It's not all about the money for her. My bet would definitely be on settling. Eva, I'm pretty sure we'll be talking to you again about this when we get the next stage of this extraordinary saga. That's Eva Wallace, reputation and privacy solicitor at Vardag's law firm. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free, in full, along with all our podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. It's the report we've all been waiting for, not least the Prime Minister. It's the report by Sue Gray, the former senior civil servant, into the parties that were held in Whitehall and Downing Street during lockdown. Now there's a question mark whether it will be published or in what form it will be published, if indeed it's published at all, after a statement from the Metropolitan Police who said this morning, for the events the Met is investigating, we've asked for minimal reference to be made in the Cabinet Office report. Uh, Joining me now to talk about this is Dal Babu, who's a former Chief Superintendent in the Metropolitan Police. Uh, Dal, we always thought, there was always a suspicion, if the police got involved, it could delay the report by Sue Gray. I understand now the reason... Um, she's now going to either have to change her report or, in fact, not publish it for the time being, is because if she's named people in the report who potentially, she says, were at these parties, which could have broken the law, which is what is the point of the police investigation, the police investigation could be compromised. Is that the, is that the gist of it? That's part of it. I think what, what's essentially happened is the police have got themselves in a real muddle here. Uh, and it's unnecessary. Uh, I mean, I do these investigations on safeguarding uh, human resource issues uh, in in organisations, in companies, since I've left the police. And basically what happens is when you initiate an investigation, as soon as there's an allegation of criminality, of assault, sexual assault, harassment, you then stand aside and you hand it over to the police immediately. Now, what we've had is we've had uh, about two months of pontificating here uh, which has basically led to quite a lot of confusion. 
and we've now, um, from from what I can gather, this is uh, this demand from the police has come as a bit of a surprise to Sue Gray and her team, because uh, I understand they were in consultation throughout this period. Uh, so it is very confusing as to why the report can't be published in full, because the penalties we're looking at here are FPNs, fixed penalty notices, and they are essentially the kind of uh, notices you'd get. I mean, I remember when I first started policing, you'd be given a book of fixed penalty notices. I'd go out into uh, Tottenham High Road, and then I was expected to stop people who'd gone through red lights or people who'd gone through the uh, sort of uh, parked inappropriately, and you'd fill them in, and basically you'd complete them. It, it, it's the entry-level crime. And what normally happens with fixed penalty notices is that they have a limit of six months. You've got to get everything sorted out. Bizarrely, this piece of legislation doesn't have a limit on time, uh, which is very unusual for a fixed penalty notice. Now, I don't know whether that was a deliberate attempt or as happens when you rush through legislation very, very quickly, you miss out bits of um, the legislation. So the six-month penalty doesn't exist. Ironically, if a six-month penalty existed for FPNs, as it does for most FPNs, then this would all be academic because there would be no uh, criminal investigation. And the other thing I thought about this, Dal, um, often when um, the police are involved, the media, whatever, ha- has to be careful what it can report because you don't want to uh, compromise, a, a, you don't want to prejudice a trial which involves a jury. But this is never going to go to a criminal trial. There's not going to be any criminal proceedings or unlikely, as you say, it's all going to be dealt with, presumably, by fixed penalties. Uh, therefore, how can um, a civil servant's report make any difference to the issuing of those? Exactly. Absolutely. So ordinarily, uh, as soon as somebody is charged, the matter becomes sub-judice. And you are by law, if you, if you report on it, then you risk um, breaking the law and um, effectively going to prison. Uh, and that's happened on a number of occasions with individuals who've said things. And I think, you know, whenever, it, certainly uh, you, if you do interviews with the media, they, they would have done, the lawyers would have checked out the information quite extensively. So it, it does seem, so that doesn't seem to be the reason here. I think it, you know, it, it, in some ways it, it shows that the police aren't very savvy when it comes to um, dealing with politicians. Uh, because uh, people have used this as an excuse to delay the report, and it's unnecessary. It, it, I think everybody wants to see the report, and there should be no reason why it can't be published. And actually, what, what we're looking at here, Andrew, is an incredibly simple investigation. You have professional witnesses, dozens of professional witnesses, i.e. police officers at the front, at the back of uh, Downing Street patrolling, so they would have known what was going on. In addition to that, you have uh, quite significant amounts of forensic material, whether it's emails, whether it's uh, door entry systems that would tell you who's gone in and who's gone out. Uh, There would be CCTV footage. Uh, You might even want to go back to the the off-license where the the case of wine was bought and brought back into uh, into the Downing Street. The co-op. It it was a co-op, was it? (laughs) That doesn't sound very uh, uh, Eton-like, but there you are. So I think think that's where, you know, there's so much evidence there. Uh, And actually, the outcome, as you said, is a fixed penalty notice. It's an FPN. It's an entry-level crime. So, you know, people don't get, unless they go to court and contest it, this is not a criminal record. Uh, You may have to tell people that you've got that uh, if you're um, applying for certain jobs. But generally speaking, it's it's not um, uh, not disclosable. 
Can I just ask you just finally on that? You mentioned the police officers at the front of Downing Street, at the back of Downing Street. There's constant 24-hour, 365 days of the year uh, police presence. If they did know parties were going on uh, and they would have pretty much known they were in breach of lockdown rules, should is their duty to break them up or to report them to their superiors uh, or is their job they're there purely to protect the building from intruders. Well, you, you can imagine what would have happened if armed police officers had walked into a room and told people, um, you know, blow the candles out of there, they'll yes. take your ass. Yes. So those armed police officers, their priority is to stop terrorists attacking Downing Street and protecting um, the Prime Minister and uh, the Chancellor. So that's, that's their priority and that's what they did. I think it's really, really important that we don't uh, have a situation where people will try and throw the police officers under the bus here. Uh, I think the police officers did their job, which was to protect Downing Street, and ultimately it will be the people who decided to breach the COVID regulations who need to be held to account. I agree with all of that. That's Dal Babu, who is a former chief superintendent in the Metropolitan Police. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe, and then you can get access to all our podcasts, our videos, opinion pieces, and much more. If you want to get in touch, Tweet us at Mel Plus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So new figures from NHS England are very encouraging. They show hospital patients with COVID are, for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, not primarily in hospital due to the COVID infection. In some parts of the country, the figures dropping to just a third of patients with COVID. So dare we hope, is the end of the pandemic finally in sight. Uh, Paul Hunter, Professor Paul Hunter is an epidemiologist at the University of East Anglia and joins you now. Professor, we've talked many times uh, over the last two years. Um, this this is the conversation I've been so looking forward to having with you. Are well, we nearly there? It depends what you mean by nearly there. You know, this is a virus that isn't going away and will continue to cause us problems for some while yet. But I think we it is beginning to look like we are certainly past the worst of this pandemic and 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 the figures you're quite right the the proportion of people in hospital are with um, COVID is higher than people because of COVID now uh, for the first time we're also seeing um, the proportion of people who are dying after um, after within 28 days of a positive test where that where COVID is appearing on the death certificate falling as well so Yes, I mean, it is transitioning towards a point where this is something that is um, no really worse than the common cold, but we're, we're not quite there yet. And undoubtedly, later on in the year, we will see some resurgence, but I doubt it will be anywhere near as bad as what we have uh, been living through even recently. And what do you attribute, Professor, the falling number of inpatients who are in hospital for COVID treatment? Is is it the success of the vaccine rollout, the booster jab, or just simply that the, the Omicron is not as deadly or yeah. serious as de- yeah, the Delta Yeah, I mean, the, you've got to ask why Omicron isn't as uh, deadly or as serious as previous variants. And almost certainly that's actually primarily down to the vaccine or also people who have already had prior infection. There is some evidence that the virus is intrinsically less severe. They've shown that the virus is less severe in, in, in animal studies, but ultimately we're not sure, or at least I'm not sure, how much of the reduced severity is down to an intrinsic reduction in, in virulence or down to our accumulated immunity from 
both vaccine and prior infections. That's what I was going to dare, dare, dare to mention the expression. I remember we heard a lot about herd immunity at the very beginning of this um, uh, out, the outbreak of COVID. There was talk that that was the preferred option to, to go for in Downing Street, but of course that would have resulted in many, many people dying. But do you think perhaps we are getting closer to a, well, a form of herd immunity? Yeah, the trouble is that that how what people mean by herd immunity has changed during the epidemic. What I have always, throughout most of my career, believed herd immunity was, was that the indirect protection of unimmune people from the fact that all of the rest of the herd, your neighbours and family and friends, have, have got immunity from vaccination. Now, you never see that with coronaviruses. You don't get herd immunity in that context because even within weeks or a few months, at least, of either infection or immunization, you can still get reinfected and spread the infection. But what I think we're seeing is, um, in, is certainly at the moment with the high levels of immunity, we've got some, uh, some quite considerable suppression of transmission, but we're primarily seeing the vaccine and, and other immunity reducing the severity of disease and keeping people out of hospital. Um, you know, but we will continue to see infections for many decades to come and often and in some years very high infection rates but not uh, i believe anywhere near the hospitalization rates that we're seeing you know they a year ago nature published a paper where they surveyed the world's leading scientists and experts in this area and virtually all of them the vast majority of them believe that ultimately COVID will become just another cause of the common cold. And that, I think, is the way we, the direction of travel that we're seeing at the moment with Omicron. Well, that's really encouraging. Any advice, uh, Professor, for people listening, perhaps, who still haven't been jabbed? Uh, go and get your uh, jabs as soon as you can. If you've not been, the evidence is very clear that if you've not been immunised, even if you've just had a single infection, you are um, much more likely to become really ill, even with COVID, than you would have done, other, uh, even with the Omicron variant, than you would have been if you're not uh, vaccinated. And I think as well, you know, if you are a particularly vulnerable individual, that is even more important. And if you are vulnerable, do continue to be careful, wear face coverings in crowded places and do all the other things that we've been uh, encouraged to do uh, for many months. All right, that's good advice. That's Professor Paul Hunter, the epidemiologist at the University of East Anglia and a, a regular, I'm happy to say, on this podcast. Matt Gatwood's here now with the latest uh, sports news. So the Melbourne Open, the Australian Open, Matt, which at the beginning was all about Novak Djokovic, would he or wouldn't he be there? His great rival to become the uh, first player to get 21 Grand Slams. Rafa Nadal has just moved in to that final. Absolutely, yeah, you're right. So the, this race is on to, um, you know, to, to get to 21 Grand Slams. As you say, they're all locked on 20, the big three. 
uh, and Raf has got the first opportunity to do it to pull clear of the other the other two now they all say it's not about you know who's got the most slams they just want to play and, and enjoy it but um, uh, you very much think it is about who finishes with the most slams between them because they're all so competitive and determined to be uh, you know better than the rest so uh, Nadal will, will have his opportunity on Sunday morning in the Australian Open final he will be up against Medvedev though uh, winner of the last Grand Slam, the uh, the U.S. Open, and who is playing particularly well, uh, he uh, beat Tsitsipas this morning. The Greek guy uh, in a very fiery, brilliant encounter uh, in uh, in four sets, uh, like Nadal won in four sets as well. So we're we're in for a we're in for a great final. Uh, it should be thrilling stuff. Uh, my, you know, Medvedev is playing really well. So uh, Rafa has got a tall order to add to his tally of 20, I think. Uh, but it's going to be fascinating to watch. Now, Everton, who sacked their manager, have got themselves in a mess. I thought that very nice Frank Lampard was going to become the manager. About the only footballer I recognise in the street. I know, I know it is. I know he's your favourite. Well, they, they, it's, yeah, I mean, look, they, they sacked Rafa Benitez now uh, almost two weeks ago. Um, uh, we're in the middle of a transfer window, so they need a manager in place to help them with deciding what sort of players they want to go for. Uh, but they still haven't made a decision. Uh, Pereira, as we talked about the other day, this Portuguese guy, uh, he put himself forward. He was interviewed. When the fans got wind of it, they weren't happy. They started graffitiing on the walls outside Goodison Park saying they didn't want him in. They wanted Lampard in. Lampard's going for interviews today, so he's having another round of talks with Everton today. Wayne Rooney, meanwhile, has just come out to say that he was uh, offered the chance to go forward for an interview, but he turned it down, so he didn't even want to talk to the club. Uh, he's obviously a former Everton hero. He didn't even want to talk to the club. He's, he's got a job to do with Derby County. So it's, uh, it could be that it, they go for Lampard, but they're still making their mind up. But they need to move quickly because, as I say, the transfer window shuts on Monday night and they need someone in situ to sort of uh, get them out of the mess they're in. But meanwhile, the indecision seems to drag on. So Everton are in a mess, and I gather Spurs are in a mess too. What are they in a mess over? Well, again, another transfer window looks like it's going to pass without Tottenham doing uh, the business that they wanted to do. We talked about how um, Conte, the new manager, uh, would make attempt some very clear signals about the squad being not being good enough. Now, one of their long-standing uh, targets in terms of improving the squad, a player that Conte wanted, uh, is, a, is a, uh, the Wolves winger, Traore. He, however, has done a last-minute U-turn and looks like he's on his way not to Tottenham at all, but on his way to Barcelona. So they've missed out on one of their prime targets. Now, they've been linked with him all transfer window. They've you know, been pretty clear they wanted him. So why they've left it till the very last minute to get it done? Uh, well, we know why, because Daniel Levy, the Tottenham chairman, is always trying to get the best deal he can get. And by dragging these things out to the last minute, he often thinks he can beat down the price. But that's come back to bite him in this one, because Troyer is off elsewhere. Likewise, with a guy called Diaz, who is a, uh, a midfielder of uh, Porto, who Tottenham have been after, Liverpool have just come in for him. And it looks like Liverpool might be successful in nailing down uh, that player. He's a very exciting forward, uh, leaving Tottenham empty-handed again. So, again, another big weekend uh, for Daniel Levy and Tottenham if they want to keep Conte happy over the next few days. Daily Mail Sport will be all over all the top stories this weekend, particularly in Saturday's bumper paper with Matt Gatwood uh, keeping a watchful eye on All Matters Sport. And, of course, I'll be watching All Matters Sport as well, Matt, this weekend, as usual. <laughs> I have no doubt. no doubt. I have no doubt. Great to talk to you. That's Matt Gatwood, Deputy Sports Editor of The Daily Mail. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at Mel Plus or me at Tory Boy Pierce.
So as millions return to the office with the end of work from home, are you ready for what's being called conscious commuting? A new well-being space has opened up near Victoria Station specifically for commuters. The hour, who are well-being specialists, are aiming to support people as they transition back into London life with what they call conscious commuting. Jazz Sandu is founder of The Hour and she joins me now. Jazz, I've heard of all sorts of commuting, stressful, overpaid, uh, all the rest of it. I've never heard of conscious commuting. (laughs) What is it? Quite right, Andrew, exactly. Well, commuting, as you say, has long been synonymous with stress and anxiety. But what's happened is that since we've been in various waves of pandemics and various phases of lockdown, people have started to practice well-being now more than ever, whether it's physical well-being or indeed mental well-being. And conscious commuting is actually trying to embed some of that well-being into your new normal. So, for example, what we're doing at Victoria Place Shopping Centre, which is literally in Victoria Station, where people commute, either from or to, you're able to now actually carve out time in your day for your actual well-being, rather than finding that now you're having an extra hour of commuting as we return to a new normal. You're actually able to embed that well-being into your daily routine, and we're making it easier than ever by placing well-being very much in your commute. So if I was to come to your classes, what potentially could you entice me into doing which will promote my well-being? So one of the ways that we're making the commute more conscious <laughs> and making commuters more aware of their, their well-being and making it actually easier for people to embed this their, their well-being in the, into their lives is having what we call um, the mindful commute. So we practice and we offer 15, 30-minute morning mindfulness sessions. So you're able to actually, even if you haven't got more than, let's say, 15 minutes, between office and the the moment you get off the train. You can pop upstairs in Victoria Station to Victoria Place and come join us for a 15-minute mindfulness session. And one of the areas we work on is what to do when you've got anxiety about others, um, perhaps having different practices to you on the commute. What do you do when that anxiety starts to result in faster breathing, into tenseness in the body? How do you learn and how can you use mindfulness actually to help you minimize your stress on your daily commute? So that's a perfect way to do it is to have bite-sized sessions. And we've actually designed the classes to be around the same time as people are, are commuting, so peak times. I could be doing some yoga, some stretching with you. Absolutely. Also help help with my breathing if I am a little anxious after coming off a packed train, not being used to being on a packed train. And absolutely. And this is something we've we've seen all over the, the past year, um, that especially employees, the anxiety around returning to work, particularly in September last year, when the first lockdown started, where well, we had that big return to work. And one of the number one reasons that employees were reluctant to return to the office was the idea of being surrounded by people suddenly after all these months of pretty much having lots of space around you, whether that be at home or in parks. Um, And managing that anxiety and that stress, you know, both employers and employees need to be mindful of. And one of the ways to do that is to look at, of course, your mental well-being through things like mindfulness, meditation, journaling, but equally, as you say, movement. So whether it's yoga, whether it's stretching, whether it's a more higher energy hit class, making sure that the body is is moving as well. Because, of course, 
commuters are now going from being having that time to do an hour of exercise at home because they're no longer commuting, having less time in the day, and making sure that you keep up those habits that you've developed over the last two years when it comes to exercise. So making sure that on your way to work or on your way back home, you find a location where you can go and do a quick workout or go and do something that is going to nurture the body. Sounds fascinating. And what's been the response, um, Jazz? We've only just opened to the public. Um, we did a soft launch last week. And there's just what we're finding is because of the location, we're in Victoria Place Shopping Centre, which is just a, above Victoria Station. We've got everything from commuters to local residents to um, even passengers. You know, often we'll have people just commuting through from perhaps um, the southwest coming into London. Everyone's really surprised to see a space like this. And the feedback we've had is it's, you know, the, the, the space in itself is just a, an oasis of calm. And I think that's what we need to do as well is kind of reflect on, okay, what are our, our transport hubs like? What are our retail spaces like? And actually try and make them areas that don't induce stress and, and that people have somewhere to go if they are like, actually, I'm a little bit anxious right now. The station's a bit busy. Let me pop up and have somewhere where I can. We have a, a calm zone within the, the space, well-being space we have. Um, and giving people a space to be able to just return their breath down to a lower pace if, if they've got faster breath and just carve out some time for themselves and then return when they feel ready and they've managed any moments of anxiety or stress. Um, but I think, as I say, there's going to be more and more of this where we find that well-being hubs are as prevalent let's say as you know florists in stations i think um a lot's going to change over the coming i would say three months to to 18 months where well-being pop-ups are pretty much on every high street and hopefully in every transport hub the new normal jazz the new normal absolutely prioritizing our well-being 100 percent that's Jazz Sandy, who's founder of The Hour. Do look out for them at Victoria uh, Railway Station, and they've also got a, um, a hub at the O2 as well. Uh, Jazz, thanks so much for joining us. Sounds great. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a great weekend and good night. Good night.